This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Morning, and uh, it's wonderful that we have kind of get in place the things that we have mentioned last week by God's hand. And it's always a privilege together as God's people and having a place together um, to learn about Him and to um, learn from each other through His Word. Now, what nicknames have you had when you were a kid or perhaps even now? What nicknames have you been given when you were a kid or even Today I saw some of you already smiling, uh, thinking about your nicknames. You know, some of the names are flattering, others are not that great. You know, you might be happy to share the flattering ones, but those embarrassing ones you really just want to hide under the carpet. And for that reason, I'm not going to tell you any of my nicknames. But nicknames often suggest what people think of you, isn't it? Richard I, the king of England in the 11th century, was nicknamed Richard the Lionheart because of his military giftedness. Mother Teresa was called Saint of the Gutters, or some simply call her Mother because of her compassion. Usain Bolt, the fastest man on earth, was nicknamed Lightning Bolt for obvious reasons. No, in the first century, there were a group of Gentiles, they are not Jews, they are Greeks, uh, in Antioch, and they were given this nickname, Christians. You know, the nickname was given because people around them observed them, and they couldn't really categorize this group of people, what they should fall under, and because their, their belief and their way of life is so different from everyone else, and so the observers looked at them and called them Christians. But the Christians themselves didn't give this nickname to themselves. It wasn't coined by believers, it was given to them by their observers. In Antioch, and this nickname became accepted by billions for the last two millenniums as our identity as the disciple of Jesus Christ. And when Christians we gather, we become known as the church. But what is the central of a church? What is central to being a Christian? You know, in our world today, when the word church is being mentioned, all kinds of ideas come in from very different people. Some people think church is a building. Some people think church is a group of people. Some people hear the word church and they think that, well, they're a group of good people. Others think they're kind of just a group of um, indignant, intolerant um, hypocrites. Some people call church uh, organized religion who takes care of things in society. Others call church an organized religion that's totally irrelevant. What is central to Christianity? What is central to a church? As we come today to Acts 11 and then to 13, we come to the beginning of the first Gentile church, which is what we are. And I think it's a very odd place to revisit this question, what defines a church. What defines you and me? So would you join me as we venture into today's passage beginning with this first Gentile church? In fact, let's begin by asking God to help us to journey into Acts 11 and 13. Would you pray with me? Dear God, as we step into the book of Acts and the record of how the first Gentile church begins, help us to be clearer what is central to being called a church. 
What enables a church to remain faithful to you? And what is expected of a church where we claim that we are living for you? Amen. Let us begin by reading the first few verses of today's passage, beginning in verse 19 of Acts 11. If you have your Bible, it would be great to keep it open, because I'll refer to it quite often. Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. We have learned about this just a few weeks ago in Acts 6-8, to that the death of Stephen, the disciple of Jesus, sparked a great gospel explosion. Christians spread out from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. As we come to Acts 11 today, with a little help from the map that I'm putting up on the screen, we found that the gospel explosion since chapter 8 has spread even further out um, of Judah, Judea and Samaria. They've gone to um, Phoenicia, Cyprus and even Antioch. As the... As the Christians, perhaps they are, no, as the disciples, perhaps they are kind of Hellenistic Jews, which means basically they didn't grow up probably in Jerusalem or Judea. They didn't grow up with Hebrew culture. They, they speak Greek. They, they live among the Greek culture. Perhaps those who have scattered, they, they are of Hellenistic, uh, they are Hellenistic Jews. And as they spread, they perhaps have gone back to their hometown, their birthplace, or perhaps they are just finding somewhere to, to reside because Jerusalem is not really their home. But whatever the reason is, wherever these disciples of Jesus scatter, they start to speak about Jesus and about the great news that He is the Lord. Um, As they go forth, um, they they start to tell people that Jesus is Lord. But initially, this is what happens. As these Hellenistic Jews, they go to wherever they are, they speak to the Jews only. Because like, like Peter in Acts 10, they were kind of hindered because of their culture and because they're understanding that the Gentiles are kind of unclean people, so they only speak to the Jews. But the implication and the power of the news that Jesus is Lord is so great that before long, the news has to seep through to the rest of the world. And so we have men from Cyrene and Cyprus traveling to Antioch and they begin to tell the the Greeks, the the Gentiles, the non-Jews about Jesus And there, the hand of the Lord was with these people, and more and more people acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. Now, there are a few things that are important to notice in this just short account at the very beginning from 19 to 21. First of all, we will notice that actually no one has given the instructions that you should be missionaries, that the Jerusalem church didn't assign them to go out and and tell the gospel to people. They just go wherever they are, and by their conviction, they go forth to tell what is important and what they are convinced of. Whoever are willing to listen, they speak about Jesus as Lord. You know, they could have gone to Antioch specifically to share the gospel, but perhaps equally that some people have gone to Antioch because it is actually the third most important city in the whole Roman Empire. Because of its geographical or economical situation, people end up being at um, Antioch. And wherever men 
from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch. They, they couldn't help and they, they start to share about Jesus being the Lord. So that's the first thing. They, they went forth and they couldn't help. And that's how the gospel began to reach out even to the Gentiles. Second, this man arrived in Antioch. The first thing they did wasn't to kind of set up a church building, uh, set up a church fund or missions fund. The, the focus of what has been happening was the message. So first was they proclaimed because they couldn't help it. Second was because uh, it was not about building or anything, but it was really about message that goes forth and created the church when people acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Now this is something that we, we need to kind of pause a bit and think because this is very different from the earlier telling people about Jesus because to the, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, the word Lord is only connected to the emperor. They look at the Roman soldiers, they look at the Roman governors, they look at their coins with the Roman emperor's face. To them, the Lord means the Roman emperor. But when the great news came, they suddenly came to mind that they are engaging with life and death and they have chosen to believe in Jesus as their Lord. So this is what has been happening as, as the news is being spread. They turn their allegiance from the lords of the pagan world to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this one great city, Antioch, where the regional governor of Rome is, where the place of financial tradings, comfort, pagan worship, and perhaps if you look at history, it's promiscuity exists. In Antioch, this great news start to penetrate in to a group of Gentiles, and they start to turn away from their pagan lifestyle to come into confessing Jesus as Lord. I think we just want to pause here and think that this should be the same for us, isn't it? Wherever generation we are, when we confess Jesus as Lord, what we are doing is to say that we will turn away from the other lords of the culture or the pagan world that we live in and to live for Him. Now, Mark 11, uh, Acts 11 marks the beginning of this first Gentile church. It is the mark of what it means to be Christian. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus is Lord. And this is how the church of Antioch is being recognized. And this is the same for us that we need to be recognized when people speak about church. Well, and they call us probably that you are Christians. But the truth is the word Christian hasn't been coined, isn't it? Because that's where we are going to come in where we see the appearing of this nickname, Christians. When the Antiochian, they start to realize there's this different breed of people, followers of Jesus. So look on with me to verse 22 to 26, as we learn what fundament, fundamentally shapes the way the church behaves. Look at verse 22 with me. Now the news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, as the news of uh, Gentiles becoming Christ, uh, believers um, reaches Jerusalem, the Jewish church decides that they'll send some of their leaders to kind of check it out, to kind of find out what is really happening and what... Uh, are they really believing? And so they decide to send Barnabas to, to check him out. Do you remember Barnabas? 
Barnabas was in, in Acts chapter 4. He was the man, he was a Hellenistic man. Um, and he was that Hellenistic Jew who kind of sold his land. And then he sold and get the proceeds and gave it to the church for the, for the ministry of, of the gospel. He was a Levite from Cyprus, which is where the, the man uh, who went to Antioch came from. He was a man from Cyprus, a, a Levite. You know what? Actually, Barnabas wasn't his real name. He, he was called Joseph. Uh, Barnabas was also his nickname that the apostles gave him because uh, he was such an encouragement to the Christians. They say, you're called Barnabas, son of encouragement. So what better person to send to Antioch now than someone from Cyprus who knows the Greek culture, someone who is an encourager, someone who would give and stake his life for the gospel. And there they went and uh, he sent Barnabas. Now when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he was true to his name. He, he looked at uh, what is happening. He didn't criticize the, the Gentiles who are new Christians. Well, you can always say, ah, oh, new Christians, you have this, 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 this to change. That's not what Barnabas did. The first thing he says, oh, praise be to God. And he encouraged them uh, to be faithful to the Lord. And he found it, in fact, as he looked on, he, he found it necessary to kind of not just go back and report. He decided to stay and to start teaching the, the new disciples because he realized that for them to be faithful to the Lord, they need to be taught about the Lord. And so he stayed and taught them about the person, the works, and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he does that, more and more people start to kind of check it out and decide to respond to the Lord. And the church in Antioch grew and grew. And as, as the church grows, Barnabas realized that, you know what? He's kind of a one man. He needs help. But instead of going back to Jerusalem to get a few good men to come out and build the church, uh, he did an interesting thing. He went up to Tarsus to look for this man called Saul. Do you remember Saul? We first met Saul in Acts 8, isn't it? When he was there approving for the stoning of Stephen, um, the disciple of Jesus. But it turns out by chapter 9, he himself becomes the disciple of Jesus. In chapter 9, we see him as one who carries letters trying to persecute Christians. And shortly after, we see him becoming a professor, a professing believer, being persecuted. In fact, he refuted people the way that Stephen did, that Jesus is the Messiah, and people could not um, engage and win Saul when he speaks about Jesus as the Messiah. So here, Barnabas decides to go up to Tarsus to get Saul. In fact, Barnabas will have remembered the words of uh, the testimony of Ananias, which we read in our responsive reading that the Lord Jesus has already said this about Saul in Acts 9.15. He says this, This man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. It hasn't really happened yet, but the time has come where Saul will exit from Tarsus to begin this work of gospel proclamation among the Gentiles. And so verse 26 tells us, When Barnabas, he found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, as we kind of follow this narrative in Acts, we clearly see that 
Barnabas did not merely go to Antioch to investigate. He realized the importance when a group of people confess that Jesus is Lord, that they need to be taught what that actually means in life. He takes up the responsibility of being the pastor and teacher, and he stayed there to teach for a year with Saul. Um, and they engage people uh, with God's word while they are living in a pagan world. So they met for one whole year as they continued to engage people, evangelize the people, as they established the believers, as they um, equipped the, lead, the church itself to have its own leaders, more and more are uh, gathered in. Now this is a quite important kind of reflection uh, for us as we, as we look at Acts, that even as people come to know Jesus as Lord, there's a very important thing. They need to be equipped to know the Lord and what it means to be a Christian. It was obvious to Barnabas and so and it should be obvious for us and our church that as we have new believers coming in, we need to not just say, oh, be baptized and rejoice and move on. We need to equip them with the Lord's word. And the same goes for every one of us. We need to be equipped to be able to engage with the world that we live in. Now, for us, it could be our Sunday regular gatherings. Like now, it could be our Bible study after, after service or in the weekdays. It could be just one-to-one with someone reading the Bible, praying and talking about how this actually looks like in, in, in real life or our own devotion or time that we are reading. Whatever the situation, we need to be engaged with the Lord's Word together. This is foundational to the health of every believer. It's foundation to the, foundational to the health of ourselves as a church, being taught and encouraged to remain true to the Lord with all our hearts. That's, that's the only thing that Barnabas said when he rejoiced at seeing them becoming Christians. Now, there's a very big danger when we leave new believers untaught, for, to, that they end up fending for themselves and figuring out what it looks like as a Christian. In fact, this danger is true not only for new disciples, it's true for every one of us. That we kind of stop thinking about what God is saying and just living with the title Christians, we fall into many, many dangers. No, it's quite different when we face a costly moral decision. I don't know if you've met decision like that in your life. When you meet a, a difficult moral decision that's costly, we need to be able to say, how can I respond biblically rather than to say, you know what, that's what the Bible says, it's not too practical, I should just do what everyone else does. When we meet or we end up in a quarrel or unhappiness in church, in our gathering, instead of saying that, I I think what we need to engage is, how do I kind of resolve this biblically? And who, both of us probably need to be humbled um, to, to engage and to be reconciled rather than to say, you know what, Andrew, I like you only uh, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to you depending on whether I like you or not. Um, if I like you, I'll, I'll, I'll like you a bit more. If, if I don't, well, too bad. Uh, it's very different. Even as Christians, when we say we pray, to actually say this, that God, your will be done. Or in our words, actually, we are meaning, God, my will be done. And all this do not happen simply when you say, Jesus is Lord. We need to be taught what that actually means from the teaching of Jesus. No, recently, Linda, she, she gave me a Christian article, uh, Christian magazine filled with plenty of articles by, by pastors and even bishops 
Now, some of these articles were beautiful. They were faithfully written, founded on scriptural truth. When, when I read these articles, I was reminded of God's grace as well as His instructions. You know, when I read some of these um, truths, it, it engages my mind with truth. It warms my heart with grace. It challenged my hands to respond depending on the Holy Spirit. I was, I was thankful for some of the articles when I read. But then I flipped on and I saw some of the liberal pastors or ministers and I was really discouraged. The articles, they, 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 they sound really good, but they were filled with moral stories, fables, even saying from various moralists or famous gurus. It left me really dry and disappointed. These supposed teachers of God's word, they carried little to no scriptural encouragement. There were articles to promote um, the environment of love and harmony and peace and to be accepting of everyone rather than to hit on certain truths uh, that are just relative. And this worldly influence infiltrated into the writings of these teachers. And as I read on, I became really worried. I said, oh, I wonder how are the Christians who are actually in these churches there was another time when I was really horrified when I was reading the writings of a, re- a retired Episcopal bishop. His name was John Shelby Spong. In his book, he has this book called Resurrection, Myth or Reality. Spong told his readers and I guess his churches that they do not need to believe that Jesus rose physically. Let me read to you what he said in his book. He said this, if the resurrection of Jesus cannot be believed except by asserting to except by affirming the fantastic description included in the gospel, then Christianity is doomed. For that view of resurrection is not believable. He's saying that if the only way to believe is to believe the way is being written, then he says there's no hope for Christianity. Again, he wrote this: I cannot say my my yes to the legends that have been clearly and fancifully created. If I could not move my search beyond the angelic message, empty tombs and ghost-like apparitions, I could not say yes to Easter. How horrified Barnabas and Saul would be if the new believers were sitting under such teachings like Spong, which already exists in its various form right in the first century. Now Saul, who is also known as the Apostle Paul, he wrote about resurrection this way in 1 Corinthians 15, which Spawn would not believe. Saul wrote this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses, about God. And Paul kind of ends off in verse 19, if only this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That means if resurrection didn't happen, the physical resurrection, you know what? We are the worst and most pitied people. But that's not what Spong would say because the world kind of finds that it's hard to believe in resurrection. Now dear friends, brothers, sisters, now as we confess that Jesus is Lord, we need to engage with God's truth because that is foundational for us to remain true to the Lord that we confess. So perhaps the question we need to ask today ourselves is this, are we engaged with God's word 
you know, day-to-day lives. If not, perhaps it's a great time to to engage with it more ourselves or to help each other because we are we are a church to engage with God's word in our day-to-day life. Things that we, we walk past in, in our day-to-day uh, situation, we could just say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Uh, how do I engage better? Because we need to engage using God's truth to live in a world that does not run on God's principle. I pray that we will earnestly do that ourselves and also to kind of help each other do that collectively. And we actually should be worried for those of our friends and brothers and sisters who are professing Christians, but they they are not listening or they are not hearing uh, the truths of God. Like those that I was reading about the article where the liberal ministers were the teachers of their lives. We should be very worried when professing Christians are receiving teachings that are void of spiritual truths. And those who sit under no teachings or wrong teachings, this is the truth, they will not be able to live faithfully for the Lord. And that's the one thing that Barnabas told the church, that you be faithful to the Lord. Now as we read on in verse 26, we find that this growing group of Gentile disciples of Jesus, they kind of start to look different to the others in Antioch. (laughs) That's why they're called Christians. Now we, we may ask, how do they actually look different, this group of Antioch Gentile Christians? Well, we are actually given two specific events or accounts in today's passage to review their willingness to live with Jesus as Lord and not the pagan world as Lord. The first account involves financial giving, but the second account involves the giving or even their best to further the gospel work. So let us look at these two accounts, beginning with the first Uh, In verse 27 to 30. Let me read that for us. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and told through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Now, historian actually recorded that the Roman emperor Claudius, he, he reigned during the time of AD 41 to 54 and there was severe famine in his time, uh, ancient historians like Dion Cassius and Tacitus, they kind of wrote in their accounts of famine in, in Rome. And Josephus, the first century historian, wrote of famine in Judea itself. But even before these ha- famines happened and it's recorded in history, God's prophets have already predicted its coming. And when the Gentile disciples, the Christians in Antioch, heard about it, uh, they decided that as each one was able to, to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, which is further down from them. Now, being in an environment where generosity is encouraged, there are very many reasons that why people give to the needy, and we're, we're so familiar with it, isn't it? So I think it's worth to just pause for a moment to see what is underneath the giving by the Antioch church. Because their generosity is not giving, given, given out of excess. It was not given out of pressure. It was not given out of obligation. It's not given out of pride, self-interest. It was done out of love for God's people, whom they now identify as brothers and sisters whom they've never met. It was done uh, out of a unity they've agreed with, with Jews, 
that they have never called brothers and sisters. It reflected their readiness to obey when the Holy Spirit speaks. And most importantly, it reflected their understanding of the grace they have received from the Lord Jesus Himself. And who can be a better teacher in regards to giving in the Bible than Barnabas? Barnabas was the one in Acts 4 who gave up his land and gave it all for the gospel world. Barnabas was the one who saw his friends, the two, the couple um, who has uh, Sophia and um, Ananias, who have kind of tried to cheat the Lord in their giving, and they were struck down and died. So Barnabas, when he was teaching the Antioch Christians, he's not just teaching them about the act of giving. Surely he would have taught them the heart of giving. And that was the outflow from the heart of the Antioch church. You know, I've often been encouraged and often been humbled by, by our church mission committee because they, they do think carefully, but yet they do give generously for gospel work that's kind of non, so-called non-beneficial for our church body. But they give. And I pray that we will actually continue to be faithful in this aspect of generosity. Because the day will come where the Lord may not just ask us for financial generosity. He may ask us for the giving of what is even more precious, our own people. And that is what the Antioch church is going to face next. Now the, the author of Luke tells us, Paul, Barnabas, they went to Jerusalem. I don't know how long it was. They, they completed their mission. They came back. And by then, the church in Antioch has kind of grown into an international church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. Um, this, is, this is their church leaders. You have Barnabas, who is from Cyprus. You have Simeon, who is called Niger. That's from a different place. You have Lucas from Cyrene. You have Manan, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And you have Saul of Tarsus. You kind of have an international um, pastoral team or leadership team. And uh, on one particular occasion, in verse 2, while the church was worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, look at it, verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now, Just as the church begins to enjoy a period of growth and stability, the Holy Spirit decides to call them for missions. And the time has come for them to also go out and share the gospel to send out missionaries. But their first missionaries are not kind of random choices. The Holy Spirit says, I want to send your senior pastor and your best theologian. Now this call requires plenty of courage and sacrifice for the church, isn't it? Well, giving money is one thing. Now you are (laughs) taking away our leaders. Now I once heard a sharing by an elderly pastor who has since gone to be with the Lord. He said this, uh, he says that Christian parents in the olden days, some of them, they, they say, this, I'll, I'll give to the Lord, but you know what? I would like to give my smartest kids to be doctors, uh, engineers, um, architects, whatever. But you know, the one that can't really study, I'll, I'll give him to the church to be, to be a pastor. Um, I, I think because at that time, just a few generations back, you probably don't get very much uh, if you send a son to be a pastor. 
I don't think he's talking about his father because he's a very godly and a great model for me. Um, but that is such a stark contrast, isn't it? What the Holy Spirit asks for is not the leftover. He asks them for their best. Now, I remember in my previous church in Australia, they, they, they were praying and they decided to do two rounds of church planting and they decided to send the most active members of the church. The first round, they, they sent the most ac- active uh, leadership in one of the congregations and when they left, the, the, that congregation was kind of struggling, trying to get everything done. Even the, the parents with a few kids would have to kind of, kind of uh, get involved more to, to serve so that the rest can go. And the second round, they sent one of their finest pastors with hundreds of their professional, new uh, um, professionals, uh, the young people of the church out. Now, after raising them for, for years you know, as students and everything, as they become professional, they, they send them off. And it was costly for the church uh, in terms of dynamics, in terms of the feel of everything. But I guess those were godly wise generous and sacrificial decisions. Because in an environment where a lot of churches are liberal, you don't want to send those that you find is not active and say, oh, doesn't matter if they go. And you send them out and try to uh, build a church. That would be very, very difficult. So it was costly, but they did it. So for the Holy Spirit, He looks at the Antioch Church, you will go to missions, but not with those who are burdened, not with those who are young in faith. You send your best. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And in response, verse 3 tells us, the church fasted and prayed further to be sure that that was what God wanted. And then, trusting the remaining of their church into God's hand, the church of Antioch gave their blessings and right hand of fellowship and they sent their pastor, founding pastor Barnabas and their strongest theologian, Saul, out. They place their hands on them and send them off. Dear friends, obedience can be very costly personally and collectively as a church. But this is what it means in Barnabas' words for all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, as we conclude, let us just recall that three things that the Church of Antioch has taught us. The first thing the passage taught us that we need to remember that it is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ that defines us as a church and makes us Christians. And we need to remember when he says he's Lord, it means that he's the one who saves us from our enemies, from sin and death. He's the one whom we have swear allegiance and forsake all others. That's what we say when we get married. Uh, I hope you do when you say that in your marriage vow. But this is what we say when we say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing, we need to recognize the importance that we need to grow in our knowledge and love and understanding of God's word day by day. Because that is what will help us to engage with the world that we are in. And we need to help each other to do that, especially if we have young believers. And lastly, the first Gentile church in Antioch, they showed us what it means to obey, even when it's costly. And I pray that as a church in BTPC, we can do the same whenever the time comes and the Lord calls. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the beginning of the first Gentile church that results in countless others 
including us at BTPC. Help us never forget Jesus as our Lord. Help us to recognize the importance of knowing your truth in Scripture and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to respond in obedience as we navigate our lives and that of our whole Christian community here. For the sake and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.